I will be forever the myth. You're the king of kings, though. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a pecking order. The little peckers never mess with the big peckers. So I'm a rooster, and he's a chicken. This episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast is brought to you by our Patreon sponsors. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon sponsor for the Bodybuilding Legends podcast, just go to bodybuildinglegendshow.com and you will see the link in the upper right-hand corner or check out the link below in the description. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast where we talk to the legends of bodybuilding and we also talk about the history of bodybuilding. I'm your host, John Hansen. On today's show, we are going to do another episode of reading old bodybuilding magazine articles. I was not able to get a guest for the show again this week, so I am going to go back and I found some really great articles from 1986, Muscle and Fitness. I was just looking through these magazines yesterday and I found a ton of great material, so I'm going to share those with you today. Also got a couple articles from the Muscle Mag International annual issue. I believe it was from 77, the one with Arnold on the cover. And I've got a couple good articles from that as well. So we're going to be reading both articles from 1976 and 1986, almost 40 and 50 years ago, if you can believe it. But I got some really great stuff. And those were really my favorite times in bodybuilding history. I believe the 70s and 80s. That's when I really fell in love with the sport. And that was the magical era for me. All right. So what else is going on? I just got back from Chicago last weekend. I was out there for Mother's Day weekend last weekend, and I spent it with my family, which was really a great time. I got to connect with some of my old friends from Chicago that I've known, wow, back in the 80s and 90s. So this going way back, we're going 30, 40 years ago. It's amazing. After we had dinner, we had about nine of us together. And a lot of these guys I haven't seen in probably 15, 20 years. So it was really, really great getting back together. And I thought about it after the dinner was over. I'm like, wow, we had known each other for so long. I met my friend Nick back in 1983. So that was 40 years ago. And most of these guys I knew back then when I was in my 20s and 30s. So just amazing. If you're older like me, it's just amazing how fast time goes by. It's just unbelievable. But I had a great weekend and uh, got back late Monday night, so was not able to find anybody to interview for the show this week, but I'll work on that for next week, and hopefully we'll get somebody. I know Steve Weinberger said he would come on the show, so I'm interested in talking to him. Steve Weinberger, of course, is the head judge for the IFBB Professional League, and he had his New York Pro Show this last weekend, so now that that's over, I think I'll reach out to Steve and maybe even his wife, Bev Francis, who is in the middle of writing a book right now. Bev is writing a book about her life. So that will be really interesting. In fact, Steve asked me for some old Flex Magazine articles that Bev was in, written by Rick Wayne. And Rick told him to contact me. So then I was able to get him over those articles for Bev because she just needed material for her book and she didn't have these old articles. So maybe I can get one or both of them on the show uh, by next week. And I've got a couple other people I'm reaching out to. We're still working on Diana Dennis. And John DeCola said he was interested in coming back on the show. I haven't talked to him in a while. So maybe I'll reach out to him. And Gabriel Boudreau, remember that name, great bodybuilder from the 1960s, was competing on a lot of those early IFBB shows in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. He is still around. He is on Facebook, 80 years old, still training, still looks fantastic. A friend of mine on Facebook 
told me I should interview him and said he has his number and he would get that to me. So we'll definitely try to get Gabriel Boudreaux on the show. That would be amazing. Uh, I got to see Rich Gaspar yesterday. Rich was in town in Largo, Florida, which is about a half hour from Tampa. And he was at the Southern Muscle Store, which is a brand new bodybuilding supplement store. And I know the owner, Annalise, I've known her for many years since I moved out here to Florida. She also owns a store in Brandon, Florida. So this is her second location. So this is right next to a gym. So it's a really great location. And went out and saw Rich and talked to him for a couple hours just today. Rich just turned 60 years old as well. So it was great catching up with him. He's still healthy. looks great. And traveling around the world, you know, for his business, Gaspari Nutrition. So he's doing good. So in honor of Rich, I've got a couple articles I want to read about Rich as we get into these articles. One of them was the 1986 Pro World Championships, which was really like the Arnold Classic before they started calling it the Arnold Classic. The Arnold Classic officially started in 1989, but Arnold and Jim Lorimer were holding this Pro World Championships in March of every year for several years. Mike Christian won it one year, Rich Gaspari won it one year. So this was kind of like the earlier version of the Arnold Classic. And uh, Rich was in his best ever shape, I believe, at this contest. We were talking about that yesterday when I was with him. And he was only 22 years old. And I think that was probably his peak. That was the best he ever looked. Amazing to be that good at such young of an age. And he really was incredible. Every time I look at the video or the pictures from that contest, I'm just blown away. So we will get to these articles about Rich. I've got two of them I want to read. And then I'm also going to read an article about the 1986 Mr. Olympia contest. We've got a profile piece on Tom Platts. And then, like I said, I got some old ones from that 1976 Muscle Bag Annual that I'm going to read as well. I'm starting to work on some YouTube videos. So if you guys are interested in training advice and nutrition advice, if you're not already subscribed to my YouTube channel, go to my YouTube channel under my name, John Hansen, and subscribe to that. And uh, I'm going to start putting those out on more of a regular basis. I filmed a couple of them a couple of weeks ago. So I'll put those up this week. I put one up already, but uh, we're going to start working on some more. So check that out. And I got some more good news for those of you who are fans of my book, Bodybuilding Heroes and Legends, which I believe came out, I think it was 2017. So, wow, that's like six years ago already. I am now working on Bodybuilding Heroes and Legends Volume 2 which is going to cover the big contest in the 1980s. So I got a lot of it already written. I'm going to be working in depth on some of the other chapters, and I'm hoping to get it done this summer if I can devote enough time to it. And I'm also, of course, working on my other book, Bodybuilding History, but that's going to take a while. I'm up to the year 1986 on that one. So I started with 1960. So I've covered already 26 years in that book. But it's that is going to be a project that might take another year at least. So uh, in the meantime, I'm going to try and get this Bodybuilding Heroes and Legends Volume 2 out this year for sure, hopefully by the end of the summer. Stay tuned for that. All right. We haven't been on the show for a while, but I did get a couple emails. See here. So I got one great email from John Smith, who was out in California, and he visited Vince Geronda's gym or the location where Vince Duranda's gym used to be. And he sent me the current picture of what's there as well as the old picture and also Bill Pearl's gym in California. All right. John sent me pictures and it said Pearl's gym today, same building. And he said, I'm getting sad and nostalgic, even though I was born in 71 and Pearl opened the gym in 72. 
we used to go as kids to the gym at the Leaning Tower YMCA in Niles, Illinois, in the early 80s. And I remember it was packed with huge bodybuilders. But then in the early 90s, it was empty in comparison. The 1990 Steroid Control Act made a dent in bodybuilding. Amazing what you achieved naturally. So, yeah, John's got the pictures on Wilshire Boulevard. 1210 is the address. And I believe that was the address of Bill Pearl's gym, which was the Pasadena Health Club. Bill Pearl's Pasadena Health Club. So he's got both of those pictures. And then it looks like there's a company called Private Trust Management Group there right now. That's the uh, Bill Pearl gym. Okay, here's the one from Vince Geronda's gym. So it's the address is 11262. And John said, here are the photos I took yesterday. I'm in Southern California. And after binge watching Dream Big over the winter, I wanted to see the places for myself. These are Geronda on Ventura Boulevard. And the next is Pearl in Pasadena. So, yeah, there's a place called Lucifer's there now where Vince Geronda's gym used to be. And it looks like a restaurant, maybe. Address is 11262. And then the other one is where Bill Pearl's gym used to be. So, yeah, thanks, John, for sending those. Kind of nostalgic looking back at those. Got another email here from Dan Turner. And he says, hey, John, thanks as always for your podcast. I enjoyed your magazine readings of late. About yoga, would you briefly explain what you do for your 20 minutes a day of yoga or just provide a link if you have a video just showing you doing the basics? Sounds like the yoga has been a tremendous help for you in staying flexible and mobile for your weight training. I continue to follow your MP6 program. Great program. I thoroughly enjoy it, and I often reread parts of your book. Also, do you go for a full range of motion? It seems in some of your YouTube videos I've watched, you seem to do partial reps. Your thoughts would be much appreciated. Thank you for all you provide for us out here. The yoga tape that I do, it's a DVD, actually. It's, it's from a guy named Rodney Yee, and the title is Back Hair Yoga for Beginners. So I'm not sure if they still sell this DVD. I don't know if anybody sells DVDs anymore. But I did look it up on YouTube, and I found the link. So for those interested, I will put the link in the description here of the podcast so you can check that out. And if you want to just go on YouTube and follow the same one that I do, it's just a really basic yoga tape. But what I like about it is it doesn't do a lot of crazy positions. It's just basic sitting on a chair and bending forward and stretching. And I just get a lot of flexibility movements for my lower back, my hips, my hamstrings, just the basics. And that's what I really need to stay flexible. And it, it seems to work better for me than just doing basic stretching exercises. So I really like it. So yeah, the link is below. So if you want to check that out, I don't know if you'll be able to find it on a DVD like I have it, but you can just follow it on YouTube. As far as the MP6 program, my range of motion, I try to get a full range of motion in everything I do. When I squat, I go really deep. My rows, I go a full range of motion. I don't know why you're saying I do partial reps. My right arm is kind of limited in motion because I had that bicep tendon surgery and I've got calcium deposits in there. So I, I don't have full range of motion in my right arm. So a lot of the Pressing exercises I do, I might not, I may not look like I'm bringing the bar down as low as I can. Like if I do an incline press, I can't bring it all the way down to my chest just because I can't, I just don't have that range of motion in my arm because the calcium deposits, but everything else I try to do a full range of motion. So I'm not sure why he's saying I do partial reps. In fact, I, I really have been working on my form over the last few years as I've gotten older. I try to control the positive and negative parts of the movement instead of just jerking up the exercises like I kind of used to do. I used to do like a acceleration type of movement 
where especially if it was a power movement, like a leg press or a barbell row, I would really ram it up really fast and pull it up as hard as I can and then try to lower it under control. But now I try to control both the positive, the concentric and eccentric part of the movement. And I really control it and go up nice and, nice and slow or as slow as I can using a heavy weight in order just to slow it down and, and prevent injury and just feel the muscle more. So hope that helps you out. But thanks for your email, Dan. All right. So let's get to these magazines. Got a lot to read here. So in honor of Rich Gaspari, just seeing him yesterday as new birthday, 60 years old. I'm going to go back to 1986 and read this article. This comes from the July 1986 issue of Muscle and Fitness Magazine. It is written by Bill Reynolds, and it says, Gaspari Sweeps Pro World. Richard Gaspari, providentially on the cover of the show program, was deified when he won the IFBB Men's Professional World Bodybuilding Championship March 8th at the Veterans Memorial Auditorium in Columbus, Ohio. A week later at the California Grand Prix, he solidified his position as the prime threat to Lee Haney's supremacy at this year's Mr. Olympia competition. In the newly minted IFBB Miss International, a pro-am event on the same Columbus card, Australia's Erica Giesen traveled the furthest and looked the best, capturing first prize money with a thickly developed, symmetrical, proportionate, and feminine physique. Without a doubt, Erica has now established herself as a favorite for the 86 Miss Olympia show. Men's Pro World Championship. Pre-meet Scuttlebutt had Bob Paris in top shape for the pro world, although I hadn't seen him strip for action before he stepped on stage. Some had said Bob would be the biggest challenge to bodybuilding's Haley's Comet, Rich Gaspari, since Albert Beckles had chosen to forego this early show to devote himself totally preparing for the Mr. Olympia competition. I'd seen a lot of Mike Christian in the weeks leading up to the pro world championships, but he'd been defeated twice in two shows by Gaspari. I'd also seen plenty of Gary Leonard, who lives four hours north of our offices, but who traveled every weekend to train at Gold's Gym, stopping by Weeder International with his wife, Stacy, most trips. And I'd seen quite a bit of the clothed Edward Koak, who had recently defected from Waba to join the exalted IFBB ranks. I hadn't seen any of the other contestants lately, and I didn't know what kind of shape they were in, so I picked Gaspari as the favorite, since he had the most recent high placing. I guess right. Gaspari left absolutely no doubt that he was the material from which IFBB Pro World Champions are made as he placed first on the card of every judge in every round, including the pose down. The reason for Rich's easy victory, he's developed his physique fully in every area, giving himself remarkably balanced physical proportions. He's pushed the mass of each muscle group almost to the maximum, and he's ripped everything to shreds. And to top it off, he poses with verve and skill. Like virtually every bodybuilder, Rich has his weaknesses, but he's developed his body so completely that you tend to forget them. Gaspari will never be noted for the symmetry of a Frank Zane, but otherwise he has developed a type of physique that will be difficult to defeat in upcoming pro shows, including the Mr. Olympia. Rich has worked wonders in steadily improving his physique over the past three years. No one else has come close to making such progress during that time. Huge and muscular Mike Christian was just as far off his competition shape as he was behind Gaspari, garnering twos straight across the board. A genuine rivalry appears to be springing up between these two, both winners at the IFBB World Championships in Las Vegas in 1984. I wouldn't have wanted to pick between these two great champions, but apparently the judges saw it as a clear-cut victory for the Dragon Slayer. 
I personally felt that Christian was greatly improved over his Mr. Olympia condition, both bigger and harder. This was partly because he was unable to bring out his best cuts due to the cramps at the Mr. O, but he had not only managed his fluid and electrolyte balances better for the pro world, but he also added new muscle mass to his few minor weak areas. Christian has also obviously been working on his stage presence and posing to previously neglected areas, but as a professional should leave no stone unturned and Mike had hired a choreographer to help him formulate a smooth and powerfully aesthetic routine. England's comeback kid, 40-year-old Frank Richard, was a solid third, attracting nothing but scores of three from every judge in every round. You no doubt read about Frank's inspiring return to competition after many years of convalescence following an industrial accident. And you'll continue to hear more about Frank because he's training with the enthusiasm of a kid and making continued exceptional gains in muscle mass and quality. Standing just under six feet, Richard carried 227 pounds of remarkably well-proportioned and symmetrical muscle mass, which he posed with positive effect. If you've ever let nagging minor training injuries keep you out of the gym, think about Frank Richard coming back from more than 40 shattered bones via 14 major surgeries. If Frank can do it, you have no excuse for lying around and feeling sorry for yourself. Dave Hawk, recent winner of the U.S. and World Games Championship, turned pro in Columbus. He was the first bodybuilder to receive inconsistent scores. Although he ended up solidly in fourth, his scores ranged from fourth all the way to seventh. I think the problem is that Hawk came into the show appearing huge, symmetrical, and delicately well-proportioned, but lacking his customary superior muscularity. And that's not to say that the man was smooth. Indeed, he was cut up, but not really as ripped up as the judges have been used to seeing him. But there's no doubt that in the future, he'll be one of the best pros. John Torelli, an Aussie transplanted for the past year to New York, landed solidly in fifth with his remarkably muscular and aesthetic physique. His movie star good looks had all the girls at Twitter. For my money, this was the best John had looked since placing second to Lee Haney at the Caesars Palace Pro Invitational Competition two and a half years ago. He had added noticeable muscle mass to all the right places, and he was again shredded. With a physique like his, Torelli must always be ripped to shreds to place high in an IFBB competition. I was disappointed to see Bob Paris place only six because I've always thought of him as Apollo incarnate. But for the past three shows in which I've seen him strut his stuff, two Mr. Olympias and this Pro World Championship, a film of water has blurred his cuts, turning what could be the body of the century into an also-ran physique. The fabulous body lines are there, but without the deep cuts, Bob probably won't place much higher in an IFBB Pro competition. Solidly developed Gary Leonard, a former Mr. America, lodged himself firmly in seventh, quite a jump from his placing at last year's Night of the Champions. Gary's arms are incredible, and his upper body is as good in terms of muscle mass as virtually anyone's in the sport, although some are a bit more cut in the torso and arms. Gary's downfall in the past has been weak knees resulting from a chronic knee injury. Since Gary recently learned to train around that injury, his thighs have grown considerably. Another inch on his quads, and he'll be varsity material. Making his IFBB debut after several years of competing in WABA and NABA events, Edward Koach placed a disappointing eighth. His downfall was muscularity. He had very little in a federation that demands its champions to be ripped to shreds. You can read Dr. Franco Colombo's inspiring story of Ed Koach elsewhere in this issue. The human hangliner, Tony Pearson, was comfortably lodged in ninth place. When he does a lat spread from either the front or the back, it actually does look like he might hang glide. 
giving those aerodynamic surface to those awesome lats. Tony is in very good shape all year. One reason he gives so many exhibitions, but he manages a higher and higher peak for each succeeding competition. After a short absence from IFBB competition, Charles Glass was back doing his customary backflips all over the Columbus stage, placed 10. For a former gymnast, he's incredibly powerful in bodybuilding exercises. Actually, he's incredibly powerful for anyone. Weighing slightly over 200 pounds during the offseason before the pro world, Charles managed a single bench press touch and go style with 550 pounds and did five reps with a 405 barbell on a 45 degree incline bench. This guy's strong, and he has the muscles to prove it. The remaining eight contestants were Bob Birdsong in 11th, Scott Wilson 12th, Danny Padilla in 13th, John Brown 14th, Ali Mala in 15th, Appy Steenbeck in 16th, Jacques Neuville 17th, and Joe Nazario in 18th. All right. The rest is the Miss International contest, which I think we'll skip. No offense to our female listeners. All right, let's go to another Muscle and Fitness article, and this is from the September 1986 issue of Muscle and Fitness, and it's, again, about Rich Gaspari, and it's called Mental Muscle. Rich Gaspari has all it takes, and it is written by Bill Dobbins. In bodybuilding, the old saying remains true, the mind fails before the body, and there are as many ways to blow it mentally as you can imagine. For example, there are bodybuilders who simply can't take the stress of competition. The closer to the contest they get, the more they freak out. Frequently, they do something totally strange the night before they compete, and they blow their chances of winning. There are those who feel out of control when they have to stand on stage and submit to someone else's judgment. Their egos just can't take it. They frequently manage to miss the plane or sleep through the wake-up call, so they avoid having to compete. Some bodybuilders have such great genetics that they rise quickly through the ranks without working very hard or learning very much. Suddenly, they find themselves competing against others who are just as gifted as they are, but they refuse to admit their faults to work harder or train and diet more intelligently. Many competitors cannot deal with failure. You can tell them that even Arnold Schwarzenegger lost contests occasionally, but losing once crushes them and they never recover. A lot of bodybuilders can't cope with success either. Many have used the gym as a refuge from reality for years. And when they start winning and have to cope with the demands of a bodybuilding career, reality comes rushing back with a vengeance. A few bodybuilders do everything right in terms of training and diet, but they blow it when it comes to getting along with people. They alienate judges and officials, say outrageous and insulting things in interviews, and make it impossible for people to treat them fairly. Too many bodybuilders are prone to blame everyone but themselves for their failures. It was politics, or the judges weren't any good, or they didn't get enough publicity from Joe Weider. Since they can't see their own faults, these bodybuilders can never correct them. This catalog of bodybuilders' faults serves as an introduction to Rich Gaspari, a bodybuilder who has none of them. Instead, he seems to have the rare ability, one shared by few champions like Arnold, of being able to criticize himself, see his own faults clearly, and yet to remain totally positive and confident. His most cherished goal is to win the Mr. Olympia title. If he is able to do it, his attitude will have a lot to do with it. I've always been a positive, confident person, Gaspari says. I know what I can do, and I go ahead and do it. I don't suffer from overconfidence. You have to be realistic about your capabilities. I always knew I had the ability to become a professional bodybuilder, but I also realized it was going to take years of hard work to get there. But it was worth it because I wanted to be a bodybuilder ever since I was 12 years old, and I've never really wanted to be anything else. 
Like so many kids over the years, Rich was introduced to bodybuilding through a pile of Joe Weider's Muscle Builder magazines a friend had in his basement. Rich was fascinated by the massive muscularity of the Master Blasters champion bodybuilders like Arnold, Dave Draper, and Frank Zane. I actually got started training, he says, because I contracted mononucleosis at age 13, and I wasted away to 89 pounds. When I got better, my doctor recommended I train with weights to build myself back up. My body responded quickly, and I grew to 150 pounds within a year. My friends could see my chest filling out and my arms getting bigger, and they all wanted to know what I was doing. As a teenager in Edison, New Jersey, Rich Gaspari would tell people he wanted to be the best bodybuilder in the world. He wanted to have a great physique so desperately that he would try anything. He liked the mass development of wrestlers, so he tried wrestling for a year. Sprinters had powerful, defined thighs, so he went off for track. I'm not sorry I tried those other sports, Rich says, because I did learn a lot, but I soon figured out that nothing produces a bodybuilding physique except bodybuilding training. So I decided to concentrate totally on weight training and building a competition physique. Rich Gaspari nowadays comes off as a friendly, open, and very social person. But in high school, he says he was different. He didn't socialize. He would get out of school, and instead of working out with the team or hanging out with the guys, he would head home to his basement and train. I was somewhat of an introvert in those days, he says. The coaches wanted me to go out for sports, but I was determined to become a champion bodybuilder. I was shy with women as well. I changed when I started competing, doing exhibitions, and meeting a lot more people. In fact, I feel bodybuilding has brought me out of myself and helped me to relate better to other people, made me much more social and outgoing. Bodybuilding also kept Rich Gaspari from making a lot of the mistakes teenagers often make. He stayed away from alcohol and drugs because he was sure they would interfere with his development of his physique. He watched his diet and learned all he could about nutrition, avoiding the fat, salt, sugar-laden clutches of fast junk food. And all this work paid off. At age 16, he had made such good progress, he was persuaded to enter his first competition. I entered a teenage show and finished sixth, Rich remembers. I was very disappointed, of course, but not doing as well as I wanted made me even more determined. So a year later, when I was 17, I came back again and I placed third. I made up my mind to win this contest no matter what, and I've never trained harder than I did the next year. So at 18, I entered again and not only won the teenage title, I also won the open division as well. In winning his first title, Rich Gaspari put together the three elements necessary to make a champion. One, talent. Two, determination. Three, hard work. Of course, while he was perfectly confident of his future, his parents definitely were not. They were actually worried about him. Become a professional bodybuilder? How do you make money at bodybuilding? Maybe you should go to college instead. So he did. Rich chose Rutgers University, and in the two years he attended classes there, making the dean's list, incidentally, he sought out every opportunity to learn more about diet and nutrition. He continued to compete as well, and he won the Junior Nationals in 1983. At the 83 Nationals in San Jose, he finished fifth and watched Bob Paris walk off with the title. Rich knew he had a lot of work to do, but he felt strongly that he had the potential to win the national title and the world. Finally, he realized he was going to have to make a choice. Take a chance. Spend a year dedicating himself to training and find out once and for all if he could make it in bodybuilding. Ed Connors offered me a job managing a gold gym in Reseda, a few miles from Joe Weider's Woodland Hills office. So I took a leave of absence from school and I got on a plane to California. A little while later, Lee Haney walked into the gym, watched me train, and he told me he needed the training partner with my kind of drive and energy. So Lee and I trained together most of that season with him aiming for the Mr. Olympia title and me determined to win the nationals in the world. 
It was during this period that Gaspari made the discovery that was going to make such a difference to his competitive career. He looked at himself in the mirror and he saw tremendous legs and a too blocky upper body. He realized he had fallen victim to what he calls the Platt syndrome, meaning he had gotten so hooked on heavy squats and building massive legs that he allowed his physique to grow out of proportion. There was only one thing to do, he says. I dieted down and I lost a lot of size until I got my proportions right. Then, over a period of time, I trained myself back up again, this time making sure the upper and lower halves of my body matched. Lee Haney was a big help to Rich, teaching him leader principles on the value of controlled quality training instead of simply throwing heavy weights around. But a large factor in Rich's rapid improvement was psychological, admitting his faults and having the guts to get small in order to achieve quality. Not many bodybuilders would be capable of making this decision, much less carrying it out. Actually, Rich almost overdid it. Once he started depleting, he couldn't stop, and he showed up at the Nationals in New Orleans in 1984 down to 187 pounds from his previous 215. He won the lay heavyweight title, and he went on to the World Amateur Championships in Las Vegas. It was really a close call, he recalls. I was so small, I won by only one point, mostly due to my posing and presentation. At 189 pounds, I was a long way from my best. After the world, Gaspari kept hearing and reading that he had no future in the pros. He was too small. Not that impressive. Mike Christian got most of the press in the months after the world. Mike would be the pro to be reckoned with, it was said. It was he who would challenge Lee Haney for the Mr. Olympia title. Like I said, says Rich, obstacles only make me more determined to succeed. I realized most people who saw me compete in 84 never had seen me big. They didn't know how massive I could really be. So I continued to train carefully, and I went to the Night of the Champions in June at a solid 211 pounds with much improved proportion and symmetry. I finished second to Albert Beckles, and suddenly everybody started to take notice. The exhibition offers flooded in. Everyone wanted to do articles on me. I really felt good about that. Gaspari continued to gain mass and learn how to peak for contests without over-depleting himself. In his first Mr. Olympia appearance in 1985, he finished a respectable third behind Haney and Beckles. A lot of people seeing him before the show figured he must be fat and out of shape. His face looked too full, and it lacked the near-death haggard look you see so often in bodybuilding shows these days. But Rich knew better. He decided to diet hard until two weeks before the contest, and then to replenish the body slowly over the next 14 days, carving up fully so that he came to the contest healthy, strong, and muscular as all hell. When I tell bodybuilders what I do, they don't believe me, he says. They get totally depleted and dehydrated in spite of the fact that muscles need to be full of glycogen to be big. And muscles are more than 75% water in the first place. The trick is to get it inside the muscle where it belongs instead of under the skin. In my own case, I know it works because I write down everything I eat, every calorie, every gram, and I make notes about how my physique changes when I eat different things. You have to be methodical about things like that. Nutrition and diet are too complicated to just wing it. If anyone doubted that Rich Gaspari could make it as a pro or that he had come fully to understand the contest preparation process, he stifled those doubts by winning the pro world title in Columbus early in 1986 and then going on a week later to finish first in the pro show that followed in Los Angeles. Suddenly, it wasn't Mike Christian who looked the best bet to unseat Lee Haney. After all, Rich has beaten Mike four times in a row. I have a lot of respect for Lee, Albert, and Mike, Rich says, but I know my own worth as well, so I know I could be Mr. Olympia one day. Every week, I learn something more about training and diet. My physique is constantly improving and becoming more refined. Remember, I'm only 22 years old. That's nothing in bodybuilding nowadays. 
I keep going back until I won my first teenage show. And I'm going to do the same thing with the Mr. Olympia competition. Whatever it takes, I'll do it. I am absolutely determined. Once upon a time, there was a 12-year-old boy who read Joe Weider's bodybuilding magazine and followed the Weider principles. He looked at photos of Arnold Schwarzenegger winning his sixth Mr. Olympia title in South Africa and wanted to be just like him. Of course, Rich Gaspari doesn't look like Arnold. They have different physiques. Their personalities are not the same. But when it comes to the ability to be confident and self-critical at the same time, there is a great resemblance indeed. When it comes to mental muscle, Rich Gaspari is right there at the top. All right. Great article. And when I was with Rich yesterday, he was talking about how he used to write everything down. And he was one of the first guys to do that. He said he would actually look at his physique in the mirror after a certain meal, after eating certain foods, and just to see what change it had on his body. And that's how he was able to determine what worked for him. And he really was amazing. At 22 years old, he was incredible. I remember seeing those pictures of Rich. And also, it was in ESPN as well. It was covered. Chris Dickerson did the commentary for it. And it was really, really a great contest, really great show. That was the Pro World in Columbus, Ohio in 1986. Like I said, I think that was Rich's best condition ever. All right. Let's go back in time a little bit more. We'll go back to the Muscle Mag Annual 77. And they have an article about the Pumping Iron premiere, which Robert Kennedy was at. And this is an article called New York Gets Pumped, the premiere of Pumping Iron. And it's covered by Bob Kennedy, Gino Edwards, who was also called Johnny Fitness. He used to write for Bob Kennedy's Muscle Mag. And Denny, the famous photographer, writer back in bodybuilding in the 70s. It says, the night was stone cold, chilling, bone cracking, 10 degrees. The streets of New York were ice smooth as glass, dangerous to foot and limb. But a strange warmth was being emitted from a small movie theater called The Plaza on 58th Street in Manhattan. It was the evening of January 17, 1977, a Monday. From everywhere out of the dark canyon-like frost-bitten concrete building abysses came the swarms of critical and cold-hearted, hoping they might absorb some of this strange new warmth that was making its debut under the film title of Pumping Iron. They were not quite sure what to expect. Later that evening, some laughed where laughter was appropriate, some gawked in wonder, and the emotionally involved by the subject matter even shed a tear or two. All applauded in unison when the film ended. The audience was peopled by the leaders of sport, luminaries of the stage, screen, and literary world. The giants of the press were there, too, including the major news wire services, Time, Newsweek, and TV stations. In the following days, the press would jump upon the sound of every remark made upon the imposing screen, spawning new national heroes from a sport heretofore looked on with near disdain. What they would talk of was the warmth and majesty of a clique of gentlemen who call themselves bodybuilders. Here be a new beginning for those who began oh so long ago in Iron Philosophy, which George Butler, the co-producer and director, and Charles Gaines, the author, affectionately referred to as Pumping Iron. At the plaza front door of the invitation-only premiere showing, tuxedoed and beaming, Butler and Gaines stood greeting all who entered. Resembling two cherries happily adorning the world's largest bodybuilding ice cream soda, and that soda sure must have tasted good, judging from the responses of the audience, whose eyes gobbled the flavor of flexing muscles that bubbled on the screen in a respectably candid fashion. A day or so earlier, this had been described by distinguished film and stage critic Richard Schickel, based on a preview showing of Pumping Iron in that week's Time magazine. Here are some excerpts of Mr. Schickel's review. 
A delicate beefcake ballet. A movie about bodybuilding? You've got to be kidding. All those grotesques walking around in bikini briefs, narcissistically flexing those grossly overdeveloped muscles? Disgusting. Besides, they're all gay, aren't they? If the general public thinks about bodybuilding at all, it is likely to be in such derisive terms. So besides having to overcome that public's basic difference to the documentary form, Pumping Iron must also overcome smug prejudices about its subject matter as well. Hidden World. One hopes the picture makes it past these barriers, for it is a very good film, beautifully shot and edited, intelligently structured, and, to risk will surely seem a highly inappropriate term, charming. Yes, charming. For its makers have resisted the most common of the temptations visited upon journalists when they attempt to penetrate these small, half-hidden worlds of the strangely obsessed. They do not patronize and they do not satirize. Rather, for 85 minutes, they report objectively, yet sympathetically, on a small but ever-growing group of dedicated people who have found happiness in the camaraderie of the gyms where they devote themselves to sculpting their lats and pecs and stuff to preposterous perfection. When they are not tugging and hauling with an infinite variety of weights and pulleys, they are perfecting their posing routines with which they mark their years, trying to psych themselves up and gently, slyly psych their opponents out for them. Armed with that preview critique of Mr. Schickel, George and Charlie boldly stood at the front door of the plaza and the entire bodybuilding world spiritually backed them. Through the open doors of this, one of New York's most prestigious theaters, one might hopefully walk in the beginning of a new millennium. And Muscle Mag was there to greet it and tell you the story. And so here is part and parcel of the action we were able to discern. There were many more important people there than we saw from our sport and that big world outside, but this is what we were able to catch with the MMI cameras. Please remember the film that night received international press media coverage, and for days afterwards, it was breaking box office records on some of the coldest days New York City has ever experienced. As we entered, passing Butler and Gaines, the lobby began to thicken with people the press photographers went insane. One of the earliest rivals was Rick Wayne's favorite literary author, the acid-tongued, mighty, super-adjectived, light-of-the-book and editorial world, Tom Wolfe. Tom, we hope, might write of the film something like, Yes, passionate practitioners of the never-too-perfect suit of mortal physical embellishments were these. They are the purplish, yawning tomorrow of this Monday's day's worship powerist fantasies. Bright, bright, bright future. We cannot remember the exact order of the stars and luminaries entered, but at one point, a loud drum-like chant arose from the stout-hearted crowd who stood outside in that bitter frigidity. It boomed from low guttural tones to loud piercing shouts and dubbed the entrance of Arnold, Arnold, Arnold in a customized tuxedo with his girlfriend. Pandemonium then broke loose. Earl Wilson, the syndicated columnist for the New York Post, who is alternately known as the Earl of Broadway and the Midnight Earl, made a beeline at Arnie and quaffed down the answers to a lot of questions about the man and his internationally famous physical self. Franco Colombo, our newest IFBB and Mr. Olympia, and Mike Menser, AFAB's Mr. America, then entered some minutes later in a unique fashion. In their gigantic arms being carried through the doors from the icy streets was the former first lady of film, superstar Paulette Goddard. But even they were outdone by our own fast-moving Gino Edwards, who had been enamored with Miss Goddard from his youth. Later, he found her in the theater and exclaimed his ardor and admiration of her. 
Miss Goddard was so charmed by Gino that she granted him the privilege of a hungry pucker plop upon her face. Bob Kennedy later noted to me he saw Gino down in the film theater lounge gazing into one of the mirrors, muttering to himself something feisty that sounded like the lips that kissed a star. Robbie Robinson came sweeping in from the West Coast, looking very much like one of the Cape Crusaders, mysterious, macho, and bold, now holding the titles of Mr. America, Mr. Universe, Mr. World, all one in the AFAB, IFPB spectrum. Robbie will be the egg Louis Ferrigno will have to crack to take over the Mr. Olympia slot. Franco is rumored to have retired after winning it only once to Arnold's half dozen. This, we might add, is one of the subplots of the film Pumping Iron, the rivalry for acquisition of the Mr. O. Caught in a pocket between Arnold and Bob Kennedy, we found them verbalizing with little Paul Simon. Little? Simon is the multi-talented singer-composer, the Mr. Olympia of music, whose name is legend in the sound platter world. Paul, who is still crazy after all these years, taught us in song, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. Sorry about the play on words, Paul. It's just our way of plugging your great tunes. Can you believe the infamous porno star Harry Reams was there too? Yep. Actually, his presence caused very little attention, as a matter of fact. We were tempted to use the joke people have thrown at famous bodybuilders for years. Hey, Harry, we didn't recognize you with your clothes on. But seriously, though, he seemed rather a gentlemanly and conservative, well-built sort of chap. Anthony Perkins' appearance at the door almost solidified the crowded lobby into a single-unit, lump-like mass as it surrounded him. Tony was the current Broadway kingpin for his hit play, Equus, in which he plays an unconventional psychiatrist. Wonder what he thought of Arnold's psyching of Louis up on the screen. Speaking of Louis, he showed up a shade late and rushed inside to greet the boys who had posed at the film's conclusion, live for the opening night audience on stage. These men, with the exception of Mike Menser, all appeared in the film itself and included Ed Corney, Mike Katz, Franco, who also performed a strongman act, Louis, and Robbie. Arnold was master of ceremonies for these hijinks and sadly disappointed a waiting audience when he announced all his tasks would include was narrating, but no posing. When Louis quickly bounded in, wonders of wonders, he was seen to be wearing braces on his teeth. No wonder the boy wonder from Brooklyn was attending to correct one of the last remaining defects of his 99 and 44 one hundredth percent pure perfect body. Soon, Lou may ascend to the throne of the king of bodybuilding. Not bad for a kid who was born with a serious hearing defect. Maybe, just maybe, this guy has been hearing pretty good all along, but in this case, a voice from within that you and I and the average man could not discern. Maybe he's been marching to the tune of a different drummer, which only he could hear clearly. One thing for sure, the name of Ferrigno will be heard on the cinema screens around the world because Louis was pumping iron instead of brooding about his defects. You've got guts, Lou, and deserve it all. The fame, the glamour, the glory, the whole bag. And there were more, many more celebrities. But in our bodybuilding world, we want to know about us. So let's talk about what was happening on the screen. There is no doubt Mike Katz, who appears in a scene of great pathos after losing the Mr. Universe title to Ken Waller and placing a low fourth, will emerge into better things. How poignant and bittersweet was his loss absorbed by the sympathetic audience who viewed this ponderous, almost awesome man as truly a real man, a sportsman. All the media mentioned Katz in regard to this in their reviews. It is well worth recapturing for the moment the dialogue of these scenes. Leaving the stage in the film as the three top Mr. Universe contestants were announced to pose down, Mike sits in his dim dressing room listening to the announcer talk of the three finalists. He mutters to himself and others, 
I wonder what time it is back in the States. Do you know? I better call my wife. My kids are probably driving her crazy. The scene takes place in Pretoria, South Africa. Waller is announced as winner. Mike breaks into a downhearted applause. Great. Terrific. How about that? That's fantastic. Pump. Fantastic. Brooding and deeply trying to control himself, he says, can you imagine how he must feel? Incredible. It's probably like I did when I was 16 and won my first trophy. In its own way, it's probably just as satisfying. Mike mills around, inwardly suffering his loss, and then slowly rises courageously, saying gutsily, I just got to shake his hand. It's fantastic. Where's my (laughs) T-shirt? At this point, the Pumping Iron Theater audience went wild because Waller, who had been playing dirty tricks on Mike in the lead-up scenes, had hidden it to psych poor Mike out on the platform. It was Mike's good luck T-shirt. The whole film is full of this kind of drama, which we've already discussed in its preview in MMI. It must be seen by all bodybuilders. It will be seen around the world, and perhaps our lot will improve because it's visions of us as not muscle men, but men with muscles who may become the leaders of tomorrow. An important sidelight of the premiere, which made headlines, especially in the New York Daily News, was the appearance of sexy actress Carol Baker, who was asked to come on stage to examine the posers during their live display at the completion of the film's debut. She good-naturedly did so, only to be treated to a game of goosey-woosey by the top champs who towered over her. She pinched the mighty cats on the packs and compared thighs with Big Louie. Yes, indeed, all that muscle on these boys was real. It might be a rather strange statement to make here, but this voluptuous lady doesn't photograph well on the screen. This is to say on film, she is only beautiful. But in person, you just want to go over and, well, never mind. Let's just say she's tough on your onions to look at and be near in person. She sure shook those muscle boys up. When leaving the stage, she either slipped or fell into Arnold's arms. All the men in the audience could feel that contact explosion throughout the theater. Arnold, that lucky dude. George Butler, who introduced Arnold earlier as the MC of the live stage exposition, had this to say to the audience about the hard years of scraping and fighting to finance the filming of Pumping Iron against insurmountable odds. Everyone at White Mountain Films feels terrific tonight because we don't have to ask you for any money at all. We got our money. We made our movie, and we hope you'll tell everyone you know to come and see it. Before I introduce Arnold Schwarzenegger, the most magnetic man in the West, I just want to make a very brief statement. All the film crew that made this film here tonight, they've worked a long time without salaries. They've deferred and deferred and deferred. It is the first time we've all been together again, and I'd like to publicly thank them for an incredible job. My praise for them could not be any higher. And that certainly was no understatement on George's part for Pumping Iron had been shot on an epic worldwide scale, including locations in Pretoria, South Africa, Baghdad, Turkey, Sardinia, and in the United States, New York, California, Massachusetts, Connecticut, all with their own individual problems while in search of exploring the truth about making of muscular man-gods. Finally, when Arnold took the mic to narrate the posing, a gigantic ovation shook the theater from the audience that included pop singers Carly Simon and James Taylor, husband and wife, along with the head of the Revlon cosmetic empire, multimillionaire John Revlon. John was accompanied by a devastatingly beautiful actress model, Jennifer O'Neill. And from a quiet, critical position overlooking the entire proceedings, sat an intense man hoping, praying, and wondering if this might indeed be the beginning of progress for bodybuilding after 70 years of minor, contemporary groping for the light of day. This deeply engrossed gentleman was our publisher, Robert Kennedy. He just sat and admiringly nodded over all of it 
And Arnold then spoke to the audience. Thank you. One thing I've got to tell you is I got a pump all over again just watching the film. It was really great. Hey, how do you like my tuxedo? I wanted to come in my gym suit, but George Butler insisted on getting a tuxedo made for me and paid for it. And I finally have a tuxedo now. I guess I can wear it to many more openings. Anyway, I hope you all had fun tonight. George and his crew really worked hard on this. They spent approximately two years on this project, but Pumping Iron actually started about four years ago when Charles Gaines and George Butler put the book together. They came to me and they said, Arnold, you're doing a great job and bodybuilding is doing a great job, but we've got to bring it more before the general public. Maybe we can all help each other do this. I think these men really deserve a lot of credit for their insight and devotion to promoting the bodybuilding ideal, unquote Arnold. Well, that about says 1% of what happened at the Plaza Theater that night. Outside, it was deadeningly freezing, but the audience, as it exited, seemed not to notice the frigidity, for they carried with them, as they clambered homeward, a very special warmish-type spark that was tinged with sweat and even a little iron oxide. And during the weeks that followed, gyms all over the New York area experienced a surge in membership and enthusiasm, while all who used the various transit facilities marveled at a poster of Ed Corney, arms uplifted, in the victory posture proclaiming that Pumping Iron, a film of great warmth, was playing at the Plaza Theater on 58th Street. And so, my friends, in physical culture, now we begin. All right. Great article about the premiere of Pumping Iron, January 1977. Man, that's a momentous event, obviously, in bodybuilding. That was fantastic. Glad that Bob Kennedy and all those guys were there. Man, I wish I could have been there. That had to be an amazing night, especially with all those stars there. All right, this magazine, if you guys ever get a chance to buy this annual, Muscle Mag Annual 77, you got to take it because I got so much pictures and articles in here. I mean, I could keep sharing this thing with you guys for a while, but there's another shorter article in here that I'm looking for, and it's Arnold doing one of his press tours. I think it was for Stay Hungry and was about the stupid questions that Arnold gets because he was being asked these questions by regular reporters, not by bodybuilding people. You can find this real quick. Arnold did a lot of guest posing too that year. This magazine, I believe, covers 76 mostly. So Arnold did a lot of guest posing in 76. Okay, here's the article. It's called How Arnold Handles Stupid Questions About Bodybuilding. Written by James Crawford. We bodybuilders often find ourselves the brunt of the most ridiculous inquiries as to what we are and what we do. Sometimes it grows a bit hard to maintain control, but maintain composure. We must. More times than not, our outer physical selves may turn off people who do not understand the meaning of having a terrific build and its overall worth health-wise. One of the experts of the art of instant cool bodybuilding defensive rhetoric is our own physique master turned professional movie star, six-time Mr. Universe Arnold Schwarzenegger. By accident recently, we caught an interview of Arnold on the NBC television news network in New York on the evening news program. We're not going to mention the name of the interviewer, a female, but we will say this. Rarely has any human being, much less a bodybuilder, been asked such utterly idiotic and insulting questions about their personal pursuits. It was not necessarily the questions that were so ignorant, but the tone and the terminology that the news commentator used, which was contemptuous. However, Arnold handled the situation well, which was a base for promotion of his new film released by United Artists, Stay Hungry. Just read some of this stuff. It starts out slow and it builds to a glorious, insulting peak of vulgarity and stands as a tribute to the polish and manners of Arnold and his ability to present himself. 
Not a word has been changed or exaggerated in any way. As the film was discussed with its bodybuilding flavor, the first question popped at Arnold was, why would anyone want to look like that? Arnold, ha ha ha, that's a funny question. Well, obviously I consider bodybuilding as a sport and I just felt I wanted to compete in the sport. I love bodybuilding and I developed myself into that kind of shape to win the Mr. Universe five times. No, he's won it so many times he's lost count. Actually, he won the NABA four times and the IFBB twice. Maybe he's just modest. No, this guy's wrong. Who wrote this? James Crawford. He only won the IFBB once and he won NABA four times. So Arnold was right. He won it five times. And the Mr. Olympia and all that. But that isn't the reason I train now. I take bodybuilding as a vehicle to other things. And I have traveled around the world many times and I've built a great business for myself through bodybuilding. And now I've just broken into the films. Stay Hungry was my first film. Sorry to say here that Arnie told a no-no. His first film was actually Hercules in New York way back in 1969. Just check Denny's History of the Muscle Movies, Chapter 6 in Muscle Mag. Sad to say the film bombed due to poor distribution and inane content having nothing to do with Arnold's ability, essentially. It's also on record he appeared in a little flick called The Long Goodbye, starring Elliot Gould as Private Eye Philip Marlowe. But who really cares? Even the great Steve Reeves tried to forget an early film he did called Jailbait, claiming his career on screen began with Athena. A film clip from Stay Hungry was shown on the monitor for the television viewing audience. As it played, Arnold narrated the scene showing the pose down between himself and Ken Waller during the movie's Mr. Universe contest. The narrative was nothing special other than a description of the action, but the next question and answer were very important. Do you consider what you've done to your own self a work of art? Arnold. Oh, definitely. Now I feel that I'm the sculptor of my own body, and there's no difference if you create something with your own body or use a piece of clay or stone or marble, whatever, you know. That's why we did an art exhibition at the Whitney Museum. I don't know if you remember that a few weeks ago, the commentator interrupts laughing. Oh, yes. And we had some artists and critics look at our bodies as we posed for them, and we went through that scene. It was a great experience. So you feel that you are perhaps an artist more than a sportsman? Too bad we couldn't, in print, convey the inflection placed on this question by the interviewer. Well, in a way, no, not anymore. Bodybuilding is a unique thing that really falls into the category of being a sport, into show business, and into art. And that's great. It gives you the whole variety of things. I was happy that I got into all those areas and now have broken into the films because for a long time, they didn't really use bodybuilders in films because the producers and directors thought it was kind of a touchy situation, you know. Okay, so far so good, right? Here's where the commentator throws a curve at Arnold. This raises the question of how on live TV does one handle what seems to be an insult or ignorant remark about our sport intelligently and in good form. Arnold knew how. He molded his reply to fit the occasion and person making the inquiry. A mistake or sign of annoyance at this point could have hurt the sport, even though the question is so obviously inane. Well, there's a certain prejudice against it. You must know about that. When people get a certain size, they're considered to be nitwits and stupid. My God, on live TV, no less. Arnold. Right. There are a lot of stereotype images about bodybuilding, and they've been destroyed in the last few years. Neat work. And that's why I think Bob Rafelson, who was the director of Stay Hungry, took bodybuilding seriously and thought he should use it in the film. When you see the film, you'll see what bodybuilding is all about. And that's great. You'll see a fine film. 
The general consensus of opinion is that the film Stay Hungry does make bodybuilders look like nitwits, which Arnold could not see from his precarious standpoint. And we do emphasize the two words, general consensus. But this did not deter the interviewer from taking us over the coals, because when Arnold was interviewed, the New York critics had already done their dirtiest to the cinema masterpiece of bump grinding and love muscle simulated action. Well, you think they aren't sort of stupid people who go in for that bodybuilding? Arnold. Well, obviously, no. Well, not yourself, naturally. The others. Arnold. No, no, I'm not talking about myself. It's just that the top 10 or 20 bodybuilders I know, I obviously don't know everyone in the film. They are not stupid and are very intelligent people. Again, the lady persisted. Well, you think that's all they do all the time is lift weights. They don't have time to read anything or do anything else, but, you know, build up their muscles. Arnold. Only, no, uh... All they do is work out two hours a day, and we have 24 hours out of the day. So we have 22 hours left. You only work out two hours? Arnold, yes, two hours, an average of two hours a day. It doesn't take that much time of your life, really. It's just that if you were to have a hobby or maybe go and take archery or shooting. Were you ever a 100-pound weakling? Arnold, I was at one time in my life 100 pounds because I had to go from 6 pounds when I was born to 240 pounds after I started bodybuilding. Actually, I started when I weighed around 160 pounds, and I was already a top soccer player in Austria and a good skier and everything. So I just changed sports, actually. I got in from soccer playing to bodybuilding. Why would you want to change? What was the matter with soccer? Soccer was good, but it got me in shape in a certain area, which was my legs. But I didn't feel it was the kind of sport that could get my whole body in shape. And bodybuilding, fortunately, the great sport that you can train every part of your body and that's why a lot of athletes are using bodybuilding to improve their own skill, like shot put or hammer throwing and so on. Segment time ran out, and with nothing left to hit Arnold about, the news reporter wrapped up the interview with, thank you for spending five minutes with us, and good luck with your new career. Arnold exited gracefully and added the coup de grace of bodybuilding sportsmanship. Thank you, and I love being here. <laughs> All right, let's go to an article about Tom Platts. So this was from the November 1986 issue of Muscle and Fitness and is written by Joel Brindley, and it's called Truly a Champion, the Real Story of Tom Platts at the 81 Mr. Olympia. I met Tom Platts in 1978, just after he won the Mr. Universe in Acapulco and was beginning his pro career. We became close friends, and even though I moved from one region of the country to another, we always kept in touch. During the summer of 1980, I moved back to Los Angeles and I resumed my training and association with Tom. He had long been noted for his leg development and now he had brought his upper region up to match them. Sought by many promoters around the globe and running a prosperous mail order business, Tom was becoming a successful businessman. He was even wanted by companies for motivational speeches aimed at their employees. These factors, along with a charming girlfriend and some close friends, made Tom Platts a very happy man. In May of 81, my friendship with Tom turned from a close one to a certain brotherhood. He and his girlfriend had just broken up, and the feeling of emptiness inside him was extreme as I visited him the next day. Tom's first impulse was to forget about everything except getting back with her, even the Mr. Olympia. If he couldn't, then he would go back to Pittsburgh and train there. But these thoughts lasted only a short time before reality set in. This was his world. He couldn't leave it any more than a lion could leave his beloved velvet. I began visiting him each night after work, and we would talk for hours about what he was to do and which way his life would turn. 
The turning point came in Oakland the following week when Tom gave a seminar. At that seminar, the energy his fans exuded gave Tom the self-confidence and courage to carry on, no matter what the obstacles. From that day, he has proclaimed his fans the major factor in his success. On his return from Oakland, his apartment was converted into a training camp. No furniture, no television or radio, nothing but food, weeder supplements, Ben Gay, and thoughts of the Mr. Olympia. And oh yes, one more added accessory, me. I guess you could say I became Tom's professional spotter as well as chief motivator. He became such a machine of intensity. Just spotting him was harder than any workout I'd ever had. Even though his ex-girlfriend and her new beau worked out at the same place and time as he did, he would not be deterred. He used his personal hurt to fuel an engine that he didn't know what quitting was. Veterans and beginners alike at Gold's and World's Gym would stare in amazement at this young man who was actually transforming himself into a bodybuilding machine right before their eyes. It was then I heard him make the statement that would become his trademark. Joe, I'm going to win the Mr. Olympia or die trying. He had many choices in life. He could have had a nine-to-five job, a raise here and there, a boss barking orders at him. Instead of living for the weekends, as far too many of us do, he chose to live for a solitary moment, the moment he would win the Mr. Olympia. His philosophy centered around Jonathan Livingston Siegel, the tale of a seagull who knew there was more to life than just existing, who reached out and found that inside himself was the key to his meaning in life, a key we all have. As for myself at the time, training with Tom, I felt like Don Knotts attempting the seven labors of Hercules. Every morning we arose at 5 a.m., ate our bananas and honey, drank our coffee, cracked his back, taped his ankle, which was severely sprained, and then headed for the gym. After a three-hour workout, Platt style, Tom felt the positive energy that the session had given him. I felt like I just returned from Iwo Jima. During the evenings, while I was at work, Tom would do his aerobic work with our good friend Tom Dunn, whom we call T for identification purposes. With T doing the business managing and myself the spotting, we became what Tom called the team. So he carried the ball and we had to be the interference. Tom wasn't the only machine in the area, though. Over at Worlds, there were two men with the same goal as Tom. Canada's superb Roy Callender, whose smoldering silence and gut-wrenching workouts had everyone wondering if he was to be crowned the next Mr. Olympia. And Franco Colombo, who after a five-year layoff was trying to duplicate Arnold's comeback performance of a year ago. Both men are superb athletes and forces to be reckoned with in any contest. Any worries we had about Franco ended when about three weeks before the show, when Tom and the former Mr. Olympia had a playful pose down at World's Gym. It was evident and agreed by all present that Platt possessed the superior physique. Only Roy Callender had been quiet during the posing, and one could see a faint grin on his ebony face as he strode back to the weights in preparation for the battle to come. What a battle that would be. Soon the word was out that the next champion of physique would be the young man from Michigan. Even Arnold was amazed by Tom, and soon became very helpful to T and myself on backstage preparations, since we would be helping Tom there. As the contest grew closer, Tom's diet became stricter and his injuries worse. Along with his back and ankle problems, he had developed a soreness in one knee that forced him to wear a knee wrap while squatting. It was the first time he'd ever worn one. His ankle required half a roll of medical tape before it was stable enough for support. As for the pain, well, he could live with that. Tom would strain so hard that red circles would form around his eyes from closing them so tight. But it was all paying off as he became more chiseled each day. Gym members were beginning to wonder if he was really human. 
He never thought any more of his competition. Now he was competing against the only foe he ever had, the only one we all have ourselves. Tom was in fantastic shape on the day of the departure for Columbus. His last week of special dieting had added the final touches to his physique, so he resembled what he had only dreamed of years before. He proved that dreams do come true. The day of the contest, Tom had the heat on his hotel room as high as possible to keep his body warm and the water away. His only visitors were his folks, T, and myself. When it was time to leave for the auditorium, Tom, dressed in a yellow World's Gym suit, was extremely confident and relaxed. Upon our arrival, we were welcomed by a thousand screaming fans. They followed him everywhere, some wishing him luck, others shouting their loyalty and support. Backstage, we secured a private dressing room and began our plan of action. Life backstage was one of excitement, confusion, and 17 of the best bodies in the world. While Zane, Mentor, and Co. had decided to stay out of this year's competition, the audience was not cheated. Chris Dickerson, Samir Benut, Tom Platts, and other stars present were enough to quench any fan's appetite. Arnold prowled backstage, cool and efficient. Though he was busy with the technical staging and order of events, he was always available to help. In the dressing room, Tom oiled up and began doing push-ups, awaiting his moment. He and I took turns running out to see what was happening with the contest. Over the PA system, we heard Johnny Fuller introduced, and we realized that the battle had begun. I went out to watch the next competitor, and I was shocked. Believe me, before me was an unreal Danny Padilla. Never had I seen him in such shape. I began to worry now. He was going to give Tom quite a fight. I returned to the room saying Padilla looked okay. What an understatement. Samir Benut, Steve Davis, and a cast of other stars followed Padilla, but none matched the quality of the giant killer. Not until an extraordinary giant appeared. Silent but deadly, Roy Callender sauntered on stage, brimming with confidence. Then as he began his routine, the tape of his music broke. The theater staff tried to fix it, but to no avail. Roy decided to pose in silence, but silence wasn't what he received. A thousand fans showed their appreciation by screaming his name as he posed. Where I was worried before about Padilla, I was doubly worried now. Franco was number 11, and his classical music seemed to have everyone a little befuddled. It just didn't seem to fit him. That, along with his obvious lack of leg muscularity, made him only destined for fifth or sixth place. Any worries I had at this point were soon eliminated. It was Tom's turn to come on. Tom, T, and myself were more than ready when they called out Tom's number. Since we happened to have a couple of bottles of wine at our disposal and three glasses, we promptly toasted each other and drank down the crisp liquid. As we walked out of the dressing room, I picked up a contestant's number off the floor. It was number one. I gave it to Tom, for if anyone was first today, it was he. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Platts. The crowd greeted him with a thunderous ovation. The all-American boy, one of our own. From the Midwest, he had come to the land of sunshine and movie stars to become the best in bodybuilding. He actually started out with no money. He actually fed himself by breaking open packages of food in the grocery stores and munching on the sneak. Now he was flexing his body for all the world to see. As he posed, the crowd began chanting his name so loud that you could not even hear his posing music. Not since the days of Larry Scott had an audience ever given themselves to one contestant, and he gave them just as much in return. During the contest, one could tell who the top six would be, to say what order was a question only the judges could answer. Soon the six were brought out. Chris Dickerson, Padilla, Callender, Joseph Wilkosh, Colombo, and Tom. It seemed obvious that they were the best six. What we weren't prepared for is what happened next. 
The proud German Wilkosh was declared six, which seemed appropriate. He was not in his best shape. That was evident. The first boos were heard when fifth place went to none other than the giant killer himself, Padilla. With a disgruntled shake of his head and the sound of his fans booing his placement, he left the Mr. Olympia stage and disappeared into the darkness. This was only the beginning, as we all were to realize. Next to go was Calendar. Boos turned to shouts and curses. Only three men were left. T and I watched him from the wings as third place was announced. Tom Platts. No, I couldn't move. How could this be possible? Platts and Calendar were by far the best individuals on the stage. I watched as Tom raised Franco's hand as he was announced the winner. Dickerson walked stoically past me, mumbling, this is terrible. Out in the audience, it was bedlam as coins and other objects were thrown on the stage. Joe Weider left the theater as Franco Colombo jumped into the air joyfully. I followed my friend back into the dressing room. Once inside, both T and I cursed the judging. Only Tom was quiet. I wanted this so badly, he kept saying softly. Then he looked up at us and he made a statement that showed he was truly a champion that day. All right, it's over. I lost. Now we're going to leave this place with our heads high. Let's go and keep smiling. It's not the end of the world. Outside, hundreds of people were chanting Tom's name. And when they saw him, they rushed toward him to once more show their loyalty. They knew he had lost the contest, but they were also aware that win or lose, he was a champion, their champion. I watched my friend being engulfed by his fr- his fans as they were sort of protecting him. And in a way, they were. Where only moments before he had felt defeat, now he felt victory. His fans are more than just fans to him. They are his friends. Wow, that was a great article. I remember reading that years ago, but what a great article. I forgot that was written by Tom's training partner. That really showed the energy that was there that day. I was at that contest as well, and I agree totally. I thought it was between Tom and Roy Callender, even though Padilla looked fantastic too. But wow, that was a great article. All right, guys, I got one more for you. And this is the 1986 Mr. Olympia report written by Jeff Everson. And it comes from the February 1987 issue of Muscle and Fitness magazine. The title is three in a row for Haney. So this was Lee Haney's third Mr. Olympia victory out of eight. And he won in 84, 85, and 86. It says Gaspari second. Flats out of the money at the Mr. O. Poet Robert Frost wrote, The most the small can ever give us is a nuisance brawl. Lee Haney need not be versed in Robert Frost. Surely he knows by now any bodybuilder who stands beside him is small and not much more than a nuisance. With those realizations in mind, Haney swats away other bodybuilders like so many pesky gnats. As he flexed his enormously thick pectoralis major on October 11th in Columbus, Lee Haney wrote his way into the record books as one of only four men to ever wear the IFBB Mr. Olympia crown three times. Sergio Oliva, the myth, captured Joe Weider's soul in 1967, 68, and 69. Frank Zane took the money to the bank in 1970, 1978, and 1979. And Arnold Schwarzenegger set the so far unmatchable record by winning seven titles, 1970 through 75 and 1980. And now the gregarious Atlantean, 27-year-old, 247-pound Marvin Lee Haney, is the three-time winner of the pot at the end of bodybuilding's rainbow. Haney should be able to pay another Citibank Platinum card with the $55,000 he won. Typically, the Schwarzenegger-Lorimer version of Joe Weider's Mr. Olympia was full of intrigue, mystery, and mastery. 
Arnold returned to solidify his hold on the collective bodybuilding consciousness. Who else could generate the interest to sell one $250 ticket, let alone 1,000 of them? Only attorney Jim Lorimer seems complete at every aspect of contest promotion, from satisfying corporate sponsors, fans, and athletes, to providing such personal touches as a 24-hour gym and hotel suites with televisions in the bathrooms. And then there were all the other interesting extras. Weider Communications was on hand to send the Mr. Olympia signal worldwide via closed-circuit wizardry. Former bodybuilding champions like Dave the Blonde Bomber Draper and Lou Ferrigno signed hundreds of autographs. Maria Shriver, Gregory Hines, and the Master Blaster himself mingled with the crowd. Guest posers Diana Dennis and Kevin Lawrence, Russ Testo, and charismatic Corina Everson, Miss Olympia, were on hand to add to the wild merriment. Elliot Ness had nothing on Lee Haney. What better word to describe Lee Haney than untouchable? To my mind, it's doubtful that any of the current crop of bicep benders can ever beat Haney, provided Mr. Haney continues to get in the type of shape only he can. At six feet and near 250 pounds of cut-up, shapely, proportionate beef, Haney presents one ominous roadblock to anyone in search of Joe Weider's Mr. Old Crown. Big Lee has no weaknesses. It will take someone as big as he with an equally magnificent presence to wrest the title from his grasp. At present, none of his competitors has his thickness, his density, his muscle maturity. Gaspari may attain it, but how long will that take? And even if he does, will he still be dominated by Haney's stature? And what of Mike Christian and Barry DeMay? Both men have huge, impressive structures, but do they have the genetic advantages of Haney with his tiny waist, relatively short torso, and impressive ribcage? Should Lee desire, he will make it very rough for future pretenders to his throne. Weep not for the magician. Lee Haney's muscular omnipresence might have rendered Richard Gaspari ambivalent long ago if Gaspari were a normal human. Problem is, he's not. At no time in the past, present, or future has Richard ever doubted for a moment that he will win the Mr. Olympia someday. As for now, Gaspari is no longer dubbed the Dragon Slayer. Gaspari is now himself a dragon, having scorched all but Lee Haney. Gaspari has the magic. He is now officially christened the Magician. His magic has brought him from fifth place at the 1983 Amateur Nationals to second at the 1986 Mr. Olympia. We mortals can't understand how Gaspari continues to show up in such tip-top shape, show after show. He's peaked for four big shows in the space of a year. In Columbus, like Christopher's flagship, the Santa Maria, Gaspari was on the money again. He was in the money, too, as he walked off in second place, 25,000 smackers richer. All year long, Gaspari believed he was destined to take it all. Why hadn't he suffered through a heart attack and liver failure, as the rampant rumors suggested? While inquiring, albeit ignorant minds sought to know, Gaspari sought the title. He trained his butt off, or trained it harder than ever. His New Jersey and gluteal striations and hardness were in full fettle when he stepped on stage, and he still couldn't touch Haney with a 10-foot pole. In fact, Lee Haney stamped a one in every judge's mind in every round. He, like Corina Everson in last year's Miss Olympia, scored a picture-perfect 20, nary one judge dissented. Where had Richard gone wrong? Well, after all, his waist was smaller. He was three pounds heavier. He was even harder and more refined than ever. His once maligned back was improved beyond belief, and his posing was light years ahead of where it had been just two years ago. 
Gaspari may have been one of the best posers in this year's show. It was not that Rich hadn't improved. He had, but so had Haney. Still, we've no tears for Gaspari. He's young, 23, and hungry, and wealthy. And the last year alone, he's taken $45,000 in contest purses, all of which would make him consider Ben Weeder his friend. Father time can't stop him, but jet lag will. Before the contest, we prognosticators had it all figured out. If Haney faltered, Albert Beckles would settle in as the victor. After all, Albert had been around way too long by now to make novice mistakes. Albert had everything figured out this time, or so he thought, but he hadn't counted on turbulence from the Almighty. Albert and company had been training in Germany before the show. He decided to fly in immediately before the contest to avoid any distractions. After crisscrossing the globe as many times as the moon, Albert discounted jet lag. However, his transatlantic jumbo encountered severe headwinds and took a full four hours longer than usual to get from Munich to JFK. When he arrived in New York, he found his Columbus-bound plane overbooked by 100 passengers and ready to leave without him. Panic ensued with the accompanying stress. Finally, thanks to two kindly stewardesses who voluntarily gave their book seats to Albert and his friend Lisa, he was off to Columbus. The stress and lack of rest killed him. In the prejudging, Beckles appeared less than ship-shape. In fact, he was more like shipwrecked. Not that he was bad, it's just that his legs and pecs were flat and his face was sullenly withdrawn. Amazingly, though, Albert kept his concentration and made no amateurish mistakes once his number was called. He fought his way back through the prejudging, and by the night show, he looked conservatively 25% better. His posing was his best ever, with fire, pride, and determination. Finally, he rested in fourth place, down from his second of last year, but still good enough for $9,000. Fittingly, with the spunk of a teenager, Albert promises much better things in Sweden next year. After all, it's only an hour's flight from Germany to Sweden. This Christian makes miracles, too. Mike Christian came to Columbus with his unbridled exuberance. The only man who smiles more is Pete Kromkowski. This from a man who only six months earlier had sworn off the Mr. Olympia contest. After two stinging defeats by the scorpion striations of Richard Gaspari, Mike had thrown in his towels. Mike's too big for just one towel. Not that he was admitting defeat. He just figured the judges had a mindset, one where he was always behind Gaspari and always around fourth place. He wanted no part of it. Later on, finally realizing his foolish attitude, Mike began his preparations. We all thought it would be too late, but when the sweats came off, Mike was ready, looking by far the best he's ever looked. He was big, defined, and super ripped. Had Gaspari appeared in his best previous shape, Mike would have beaten him soundly. Only Rich's extra three pounds shifted the results. Of all the contenders, perhaps Christian has the brightest potential to outshine Lee Haney. He's taller than Lee and about the same weight. I said it before, but Mike's upper body is on par with Haney's. Mike, Lee has bigger, thicker pectorals, but Mike has better arms. Mike's upper body is so good that it overshadows his legs, but in all fairness to him, I've never seen his legs looking so thick. If he improves again over the next year, he may pack his own October surprise. Mike gained $13,000 for his third-place finish. No booze this time around. Barry DeMay was starting to think the only thing he was good for was creating a riot. In Brussels at the 1985 Mr. Olympia, the crowd went berserk when he posed. Chairs were thrown when he didn't win. In New York, at Wayne D'Amelio's annual Night of the Champions, Barry slipped down to sixth place, the victim of sodium and water bloat. The crowd almost lynched the judges, spurred on by that notorious rabble-rouser Rick Wayne. Even though, by his own admission, his mighty muscularity was off, 
Barry's fans, mostly females, would have no part of his sixth place. They can't bear it when Barry doesn't win. For penance, Barry turned taskmaster. He drove himself harder than before and became a regular Spartan at the dinner table. He looked sharp. His back striations were there, and his leg muscles were more cleanly separated than usual. However, I still don't think Barry has learned all the nuances of contest preparation. He's only 24. I've observed him in the offseason when he has amazing fullness and muscular detail. When he's able to put the two aspects together, as Gaspari has, he will seriously threaten Lee Haney. Barry netted $6,000, which would make a nice first-class trip back to Holland with drinks for everyone. Those Wonder Bar Germans. Josef Wilkosch, Peter Hensel, and Joseph Gromulus were backed by two German judges, supporter Herr Busak, and some 80 vociferous German fans, the loudest of whom was Krista Neuer, Corina Everson's very German mother. Other than the Gaspari cheering session, the Germans thought the noblest supporters' chants of Peter, 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 or Joseph, Joseph, Joseph echoed through the hall, packed with 4,000 rabid fans. This was the Mr. Olympia debut for 1985 amateur world champions Joseph Gromulus and Peter Hensel. Joseph Wilkosch, a 1979 world champion, was a veteran, having finished third in the 1984 Mr. Olympia. Of the three, Hensel was in the best shape. He has such fine shape and proportion that it reminds me of Lee Labrada, who was eligible to compete but did not. Hensel finished in sixth and just needs more time to get larger. He doesn't have any weak body parts and his posing is a delight to watch. Hensel was one of the few routines that wasn't boring. Where were John Brown, Mohammed Makawi, and Bob Paris when we need them the most? Back in 1984 at the Amateur World Championships in Las Vegas, Gaspari just squeaked by Joseph Gromulus in the light heavyweights. Gromulus is amazingly thick with triceps that would make Bill Pearl envious. He confused the judges by carrying ponderous mass but needing just a touch more hardness and definition. Although he ended in 10th, some judges gave him a couple of sixes. Once he hones down like Gaspari, and he's capable of it, Joseph Gromulus will be battling for a top five finish. Dignified Joseph Wilkosh has seen better days. The bearded 38-year-old giant was good, but not quite up to his 1984 standard when he finished right behind Haney and Makawe. The charismatic and friendly Teuton has been extremely busy building his Stuttgart gym, and no one expected that he would even enter. The caliber of physiques in this contest continues to improve. You cannot expect to finish in the top 10 unless you are your all-time best. Josip was not, and he missed the cut. The German contingent couldn't be too unhappy, though. As Meatloaf sings, two out of three ain't bad. The beef is back. Since the 1983 Mr. Olympia in Munich, where Samir Benut won, Lee Haney finished third, and Bertel Fox emerged as the fan's choice for the title, the man with the beef has been on hold. Bertel has taken a leave of absence with a ton of personal problems that needed working out. The Columbus fans breathed a sigh of relief when Fox made the stage this time. Bertel had made some changes. His posing, although still dominated by most muscular shots, was much improved. In an effort to rip up, Bertel had shed some beef, but it appeared he'd lost weight too much, which left him without that necessary full look. Bertel's pectorals, triceps, deltoids, and biceps are among the best in bodybuilding. Perhaps only Ferrigno, Schwarzenegger, Haney, and Oliva have ever showed so much mass in these body parts. Bertel finished seventh and $3,000 richer. Some of his diehard fans wanted him as high as fourth, but I think his placement was about right. With his troubles behind him and more time to train, I expect Bertel to be better next year. Have gun, will travel. 
when Ron Love walks out the door in the morning on his way to work, it's not like you and me heading to the local gym. Ron is a police officer in Detroit. Nothing has to be said more about the dangers of that job. Ron is a holdover from the old school. He works outside of the bodybuilding world. Our 1985 national heavyweight champion is making miraculous improvement from contest to contest. Ron's upper body is in the same category as Haney's and Christian's. Once the 35-year-old neophyte brings his legs up, I believe he'll make a run for the title. It's definitely within the realm of possibility. He just needs to believe this and make his move. Ron finished eighth and took home $2,000 for his efforts. Bodybuilding's Crocodile Dundee. If Paul Hogan is Australia's hot movie commodity, John Torelli continues to be the best body man to come from down under. John was in very good shape for Columbus, but his lethal frame makes him nearly impossible for him to gain the type of thick mass needed to stand with the big boys. At the very least, this process will take him much longer. Nevertheless, he has perhaps the most pleasing structure on stage. His shape and proportion always make him a candidate for top placement. John was in his best shape since he burst on the scene with a very close second to Haney at the 1983 Caesars Cup in Las Vegas. In this tough competition, John was able to slip into ninth place and earn $1,500. That's worth roughly $3,000 back home. Out of the money, but not out of our hearts. The most popular competitor of the night was Tom Platts. Tom was in good shape, perhaps not as ripped as last year, but bigger this year with suitable definition. He just missed the top 10, owing to the superb condition of everyone else in the contest. Tom brought the house down with his thigh poses, as he always does. He jumped off stage and he threw a series of mind-boggling poses to the audience, working them into a fever pitch. Platts' finish proves, though, that the judges no longer vote for popularity. Physique alone counts. As it was, Tom was a solid 11th place man. Eduardo Kolak, Frank Richard, and Gary Leonard have all been better, although I thought Gary Leonard was the best he's been since his comeback started. Frank Richard was probably feeling fatigued, suffering the slings and arrows of outrageous overtraining and his many recent efforts to hit a peak. He didn't look as good as he did in the LA Grand Prix a few months earlier. Neither did Kowak. Eduardo looked flat in his upper body, but his legs were their usual unreal selves. He had experimented with a new dietary and supplement approach that didn't work out. Gary Leonard, as far as I was concerned, was the only professional to really go out on the limb with a novel posing routine. Most of the time, the men's posing is just plain boring. I suppose it's appropriate that our nation has been celebrating Columbus Day for years, and the scholars still can't determine whether Eric the Red beat old Christopher over here or if he didn't and Chris landed first. Where the hell did the guy actually land anyway? Bodybuilding scholars, meanwhile, have it much easier. They know all the answers just as soon as Lee Haney steps on stage. Perfection is always easy to see. And the final results, Lee Haney first, $55,000. Rich Gaspari second, $25,000. Mike Christian third, $13,000. Albert Beckles fourth, $9,000. Barry DeMay fifth, $6,000. Peter Hensel in sixth, 4,500. Bertel Fox, seventh, 3,000. Ron Love in eighth, 2,000. John Torelli in ninth, 1,500. And Joseph Gramulis, tenth, with 1,000. And then 11th was Tom Platts. Joseph Wilkosh was 12th. Eduardo Kowak, 13th. Frank Richard, 14th. And Gary Leonard, 15th. All right. Great stuff. All right, guys. Well, that's all I got for this week. I hope you enjoyed all those articles. I know it's kind of a long show, but got some great articles from back in the old days, 76 and 86. 
going way back. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. We will be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you to all our Patreon donors for continuing to support the Bodybuilding Legends podcast. If you guys want to be a Patreon donor, check out the link below in the description or go to bodybuildinglegendshow.com and check out the link in the upper right-hand corner. Until then, train hard, stay safe, and we'll see you guys next week. Take care.